Please take your copy of God's Word and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We've begun a study of this book, and I will confess from the very beginning that this is a book that I've wanted to preach through and study for so many years. And uh, now that I've gotten into it, realize what depth and width and breadth it has, and I am certainly enjoying every moment's study of it. And just full disclosure, I, um, I don't think this is going to be a fast study, and I think it'll be worth our time to give attention to it. Let me read the text that we'll be looking at this morning. We're going to be isolating our attention on verses 4 to 6, but I want to read verse 3 to get a running start. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul writes to the Ephesians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just... As he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved the Bible is fundamentally a book about God it reveals who God is and what God is like and what God expects for the people in the world he created when you read the Bible when you read the word of God you are literally hearing God speak and everything about which he speaks is true The overarching message of the Bible then, which is true, ought to penetrate our hearts in an especially meaningful way, and that is it tells us about God. The Bible tells us who God is and what he's like and how to know him. When theologians speak of God and what he's like, we call those descriptions attributes, the attributes of God. For example, we look at God as holy and omniscient he's omnipresent he's everywhere at one time he is just everything he does is right he's merciful he's patient he's good he's eternal he's immutable he doesn't change he's self-existence we call that the aseity of God all of these attributes point to an overarching fact about his character and that is this he is sovereign He's the sovereign one, the king, the ruler over everything he's created, over heaven and earth. That attribute, the sovereignty of God, is really the connective tissue of all of his other attributes. The sovereignty of God, when we speak of his sovereignty, it means that he rules over his created universe as he wishes. Over the next few weeks, and we'll see how long it takes us to get through this topic but we will be in no hurry. We'll hear from several writers of Scripture, all being attributed to the Holy Spirit, who's the ultimate writer of Scripture, speak of God's sovereignty. Daniel 4, 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but God does according to his will. And the host of heaven among all the inhabitants of the earth. 
No one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Isaiah 45, 7. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Lamentations 3.38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Psalm 115, verse 3, maybe an overarching text. Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. Look down the page just for a moment. We'll get there in just a few weeks in Ephesians 1.11. We've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his own will. He does what he wants as he wants. But this divine attribute raises a question that has been asked for centuries It has been the subject of church councils, the subject of many debates. It has, frankly, split many churches. And yet it shouldn't. This is the sweetest of the spiritual blessings that Paul will unpack in this first sentence in Ephesians that so frames up God's character. If God is sovereign, though, What about man's choice? What about his choices? What about his volition? What about man's will? Are we all really just robots that he winds up and watches without any responsibility or any volition at all? Usually the question comes up like this. How can God's sovereignty and man's free will be reconciled? Now, we'll have much more to say about that when we get to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. But for now, let me just suggest that the idea of man's free will is a misnomer. Man does not have free will. Romans 6 tells us that every man is a slave to a will, and that will is his own unrighteousness. We're a slave to sin That's not truly free. And Ephesians 2 will go one step further and say, not only are we slaves to sin, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. It's better to speak then, not of man's free will, but of man's responsibility. And how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. How can God be sovereign and man be responsible and those two realities coexist? Especially with regard to eternal salvation. Listen to these helpful words from Robert Mounts. He says this, quote, this is so comforting to my own mind. Human logic cannot harmonize divine sovereignty and human freedom. Did you hear that? That's pretty strong. Human logic cannot harmonize divine sovereignty and human freedom, but both are equally taught, clearly taught in Scripture. Neither should be adjusted to fit the parameters of the other. They form an antinomy that by definition eludes our best attempts at explanation. Let me go back to something he said in his quote that I think is very important for us to remember. Neither God's sovereignty nor man's responsibility should be adjusted to fit the parameters of the other. 
And what happens in, uh, oftentimes when we think about these is we make an error where we dumb down God's sovereignty because of man's responsibility or we dumb down man's responsibility because of God's sovereignty. And th- those, those cannot be dumbed down to understand each other or adjusted. Albert Leckie writes this. The fact of, of election is taught in our Bibles, whether it be res- in respect to angels, Israel, or the church, And though there might be much about it we cannot understand, we humbly and worshipfully accept the truth of it. And then this, to fully understand it would require us to know as much as God knows. It is man's proud mind that dismisses what it cannot fully understand, end quote. So when we talk about election, we're not talking about presidential or gubernatorial or or local elections. When we talk about election, we're talking about what God does to choose individuals to be his own. And we'll say much about that in the coming weeks. The challenge of accepting divine sovereign grace or election or God's choosing, the challenge of accepting and believing that doctrine of sovereign grace is not in our ability to understand the reality of it. Let me say this as clearly as I can and as pastorally as I can muster up. The challenge is not explaining to you what this means. The challenge is getting anyone to accept it. It is not a difficult doctrine to understand. It is a challenging doctrine to accept. In fact, I'm convinced that most people's difficulty with divine sovereignty and salvation is not because they don't understand it, it's because they don't like it. And the reason they don't like it is they have compromised either God's sovereignty or man's responsibility and those aren't able to coexist in their mind. Now, be cautioned, please be cautioned as we go through this text in the coming weeks against forming and holding to opinions and ideas before the Bible teaches us about those. Full disclosure, I went into my seminary education having serious heartburn about divine election. I remember saying things like, I'm a three and a half point Calvinist. I, didn't, I never knew which half point was, was half, but didn't really, didn't really want to accept the fact. And the, the, the reason is, in my heart, I, I wanted to protect God from looking like he was, in some ways, doing something that I didn't think was unfair. It wasn't until I was studying what the texts actually teach, this being one of them, that it rocked my world to say, the problem is not that I don't understand this. The problem is that I'm uncomfortable with it. And all your efforts to understand what God is doing, remember that you will never, ever, ever fully grasp how man can be totally responsible, God can be absolutely sovereign in such a way that you can settle that debate for the, the thousands of years that has been discussed. Objections against God's election, divine election, sovereign grace are connected to, I think, four categories, and we'll talk about these more next week. I think, first of all, it's connected to a suspicion of God's character. We're trying to protect God. God can't possibly be seen as unfair or, or unloving or in any way choosing some and not choosing others. So we're suspicious that God, God's character is somehow at stake. Secondly, it's an underestimation of man's fallen condition. That's another reason that we object and revolt against God's divine election. We underestimate how dead is dead. 
we underestimate man's fallen condition. Thirdly, it's a misunderstanding of Scripture. We just twist the Scriptures to fit our emotional response to this rather than looking at exactly what the text says and accepting it. And as I said, a fourth reason is a simple dislike over God's sovereignty. We just don't like the idea that God is totally in control because in accepting and admitting that, we are giving up our own. So again, the problem is typically not because you don't understand, but because you don't like it. And I I trust that as we look at this text, you will not only like, but you will love the fact that divine sovereign grace is a blessing. Paul calls it a spiritual blessing wrought in heaven for us. There have been a few times in the past that I've shared with you a metaphor that really came to my own heart in trying to wrestle with this. And I I hope it might be helpful to you this morning as we begin in the coming weeks. And that is the metaphor of a beautiful, raging, rapidus river. It's worth repeating, I think, this morning. Imagine this river that's before you. It is crashing with rapids as far upstream and downstream as you can see. And you really want to get to the other side. You want to know curiously what's on the other side of the river. And so you look at this river. It's too deep to dig under. It's too fast and rough to swim or boat across. The rapids extend too far to the horizon in both directions to go upstream or downstream to pass. It's too far to jump or catapult across. And in all your efforts to cross, you never stop to appreciate its beauty the glorious nature of how those rapids look and sound the mist that falls off and lands on your face never stopping to realize its beauty never stopping to realize its awesomeness you are trapped by trying to cross it I think this ought to be our response as we come to this text in the doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation, I think spiritual maturity will look at this doctrine as an unconquerable river for our human logic and simply step back and say and see and accept what God has done in this doctrine and worship him for it. Let me be honest. I am very aware how troubling this doctrine can be. And yet Paul is not talking about the mental debate of this doctrine. He is using this as his first exhibit A for the blessings, the spiritual blessings of God. This should be something that makes us as Christians overwhelmingly joyful about, not constrained and tripped up about. There's a paradox we have to come to grips with. God is absolutely sovereign. Man is absolutely responsible and those are parallel tracks that, as Spurgeon says, we can see on a train track, but if you look and those, those tracks disappear in the horizon, they seem to come together. They will come together in God's mind someday, somewhere. So as we study this week and in the coming weeks, I want to make sure that we're not separating man's responsibility from God's sovereignty and also not forgetting God's character. We're gonna get to this next week, but if you remove divine sovereignty from divine kindness and the good intention of his will and his glory and his his expressed loving kindness to us, if you separate those, you're gonna get tripped up. And Paul doesn't separate them. He weaves them wonderfully together in this passage. Again, the real problem is not 
that we don't understand it. It's that we don't accept it. Now, before we dive into the details of this passage, let me remind you that verses 3 to 14 are one giant long run-on sentence in the Greek text. And it might be helpful for us to make note of a couple of special terms that we're going to dive into as we study this in the coming weeks. They, they point to God's forethought, God's wisdom, God's plans, God's purpose, God's direction regarding his sovereignty. He weaves together strong words like chosen, predestined, plan, and will. And this doctrine must be carefully nuanced. And that's exactly what Paul does in the paragraph before us. He nuances every theological notion with divine inspiration in a way that helps us not gravitate to any extreme that would have us commit theological error. Now, one of the first things to notice, and I need to say this now, we'll talk more about it in our coming studies, is that this passage in verses 3 to 14 is incredibly thoroughly Trinitarian. God in three persons is represented here in, in the fact that the, the spiritual benefits are, are, are overwhelmingly attached to the Godhead, to the Trinity. We see the election of the Father, the redemption of the Son, and the seal of the Holy Spirit. And they all point to our absolute sufficiency in God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. This is going to be an interesting study in in Ephesians because the activity of the three persons of the Trinity is found in eight passages in, in Ephesians. All you should, also, you should know that Paul is uh, being a little bit um, philosophical here and, and transcendent in talking about time. It's interesting how he looks at time in this sentence. He's showing us, first of all, that believers are covered and thought of by God in the past, in the present, and in the future. Election in verse 4 looks to the past, what God did before the world began, where God made a sovereign choice. Predestination in verses 5 and 6 will show us God's future, how he looks to the future and how he predestines a believer in his position and in his life as a son and daughter of God to live with purpose. So with these introductory thoughts, I want us to dive in together and look at a Christian's two viewpoints for enjoying the blessings, blessing of election. He talks about election, and remember, this is exhibit A, the first example he gets when he says in verse three that he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. The first one is sovereign grace or divine election, sovereign choice. A Christian's two viewpoints for enjoying the blessing of election. Now, you notice that that says a Christian's two viewpoints we are only going to get, I hope we get through the first one today. Let me just say it that way. This is so rich and full. We'll only be able to look at the first one today and we'll come back to the second one next week, Lord willing. A Christian's two viewpoints for enjoying the blessing of election. The first is in verses, verse four. God's purposeful choice. God's purposeful choice. He made a choice and it was embedded with divine purpose. Verse four, well, go back to verse three. He blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We looked at that in our last study. God has chosen to bless believers because of their faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing, not necessarily every physical blessing. 
One day our faith will be sight and all of our senses will be fully enraptured in satisfaction. But right now we need to take on full authority and promise from God that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing and those are the blessings that mean the most, that matter the most. In verse four, he starts a list of giving us these blessings. Interestingly, he starts by saying, God's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. I wanna give you exhibit A, number one, something you should rejoice about. This should make you happy. This is not entered into a a Calvinist Arminian debate. He starts out by saying, this is something you ought to be overwhelmed and thrilled by, not confused about. Verse four, just as, he's blessed us with every blessing, every spiritual blessing, just as, or as an example, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. So as Paul is describing the specifics of our spiritual blessings, as he forecasts these blessings, he starts in verse three with the doctrine of sovereign choice, divine election God's choosing of a believer to be a believer in eternity past. Now, we're gonna break this down by just asking and answering some questions. The first question is this, who chose? Who is the one who chose? This is important. Just as he, he chose. The he is, has an antecedent that's God the Father. As we said last week, the subject of nearly all the verbs in this long sentence is God the Father. Who chose? God chose. Paul discloses the anchor of this section with the subject in this part of the sentence. It's God. He, he chose. God knew every option and every possibility in his created universe. And yet God knew all the apparent options, and he chose that we as believers would believe from all the human race. I love how Harold Honer says this, quote, there is no indication here of any dislike toward those who are not chosen. That's where your mind instantly goes, isn't it? Well, if he chose us, what about the, chose he, the ones he did not choose? That's not even in, in Paul's mind here. Honer says, there's no indication of any dislike on God's part, toward those not chosen. It is not a rejection with any disdain. The choice of Levi for the priesthood does not imply anything negative about the other tribes, speaking of the Old Testament. Furthermore, nowhere is election contrasted with reprobation. That's God electing some to damnation. Nowhere is that contrasted. It speaks only of those who are chosen and nothing of those who are not chosen, end quote. And we need to say that because I think sometimes because we have hearts that care and swelling human hearts with, with respect to our loved ones and people that we know, our first question is, well, if I am chosen, if someone is chosen, what about someone who isn't? And that is a valid question for another text, another time. But Paul doesn't go there here. He goes straight to the fact that this is a blessing to be enjoyed. There is no one now, by the way, or in history whom God chose because they were worthy or special. This is not like Little League or 
sandlot when you're out playing baseball or football in the backyard and uh, most of us as, as guys know what this is like to, you, you got a dozen guys and you pick two captains and the, pick, and the captains start picking their teams and, and it's always interesting to watch. I was inevitably the last one picked and I remember watching, okay, he's the biggest, chose him. He's the fastest, chose him. He's the second biggest, chose him. He's the second fastest, chose him. He's the meanest, he chose him. He's the second meanest, he chose him. And then there's one left over and I got to be the perpetual center. That's kind of how it worked. God didn't choose based on anything worthy or special about us. Nothing. And if you really understand the state of your own heart, that should be apparent. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3 tells us. All are deserving of divine rejection and divine judgment. God was under no obligation to pick anyone to be with him forever. We all deserved forever judgment in a real and everlasting hell And yet he chose some not to go there. You say, why? Why? How? What's the criteria? Paul told us that the criteria is based on a passage in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 33, this is when Moses is about to be held or put in the cliff to the rock and he walks by. God walks by and tells him his name. Right before that, God says, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, Moses. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. Why? And he says something about his character. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Paul picks up that argument. We'll see this next week in chapter nine of Romans and says, based on that, that's why he chose Jacob rather than Esau. It's important to recognize here that Paul is not entering into a debate about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility or about those who were not chosen. He is simply reflecting on divine election and saying, it's amazing he would choose anyone. Again, Harold Honer says this, the real problem is not why he had not chosen some, but why he chose any. And then he says this, no wonder God is to be praised. There is a time for us to talk about God's elective choice of some and not others. And the Bible is not afraid of that question. But we have to be careful that when we deal with a text, we, we let that text sing its song. And this song is, if you believe, you should look at that as a blessing from the heavenlies, from God, and give him glory in that. It's amazing that we, any of us who are chosen believe it all. Why? Here's the answer that Paul gives us. Because God chooses whom he chooses. You say, that's no answer at all. Well, he got it from Moses. Well, that's no answer at all. Well, Moses got it from God as a direct quote. We just sang it, Aaron let us. You will save whom you will save. And that is as deep as it gets and we need to look at the river and let it be amazing and not be tripped up by trying to cross it. Who chose God? God gets all the glory for choosing sinners to be reconciled with him. 
God is the sovereign initiator and enactor of salvation. Second question, who was chosen? This is a big word. Are you ready for it? Us. That's what Paul says. He chose us. And then he gives a little uh, footnote, in him. It's necessary to understand who is the us here. And if you read Ephesians, maybe you should read Ephesians in a lot of different ways in the coming weeks and months. Read it sometimes looking for the work of Christ. Read it, read it sometimes looking for the work of the Spirit. Read it sometimes looking for the work of the Father. Read it sometimes looking at the pronouns, we and us. For example, Ephesians 5, 1, 1, 9 rather. 1, 9 is us who believe. That's the us, the ones who believe. Ephesians 5, 1, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us. That's us. We are the ones for whom Christ gave himself an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. I love Ephesians 2, 1 to 7. Look at the pronouns here, the we's and the us's. And you, I guess in y'all, that's the, the Greek, the plural of believers. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is working and sons of disobedience. Among them, we too also formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. So he counts us who are saved as those who once were dead, walking in unholiness and according to the world. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we, there it is again, were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's the we's and the us's and the you that Paul points at. Those who were dead in trespasses, those who walked according to our own flesh and the desires of the world. And yet God made us alive with his son. Now, I know what some of you are saying. I know what you're thinking because I've thought it too. I want to show you something because you're, you're probably saying, well, I, I want to be chosen. What if I'm not chosen? Am I, am I predestined to disbelief and to hell? I, 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 I want to be chosen, but I can't make that choice. So what do I do with that? Let me show you something really interesting. Turn back for just a moment to Romans chapter, uh, we'll start in chapter eight. Um, we spent many, many weeks studying this a few years ago, but I want to show you something in how it climaxes in God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. Lest someone potentially would give up and say, well, I must not be elect, so I'm... I'm on the outs. No. Look at a, a first at a Romans 8.29, right after that great glorious 8.28 that we all know. For those whom he foreknew, we're gonna come back to that next week in predestination, he also predestined to become conformed 
to the image of his son so that he would be the first we, he would be the firstborn among many brethren and these whom he predestined he called and those whom he called he justified and those whom he justified he also glorified so there's God's sovereign elective purposes in salvation look down at chapter 9 verse 10 not only this but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man our father Isaac for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand not because the works but because of him who calls it was said to her the older will serve the younger just as it is written Jacob I love but Esau I hated (laughs) what shall we say then There's no injustice with God, is there? This isn't fair, is it? Or is this fair? And Paul says, may it never be that God is unfair. For he who says, now he goes back to Exodus chapter 33. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God, this is who it depends on, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. He will say to me then, then why does he still find fault? Who resists his will? Isn't that the question? If he enlivens and he hardens, then how am I responsible at all? How can anyone be blamed On the contrary, Paul says, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepare for destruction? Isn't it amazing God would save anyone? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, mercy which he prepared beforehand in glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews but only, but also from among the Gentiles. So what he's saying is, we've studied this many times before, God will be merciful on whom he'll be merciful, compassionate on whom he'll be compassionate. We are not to look at the potter and say, why did you make me like this? We have no right to question God. So at this point, Paul anticipates that people are gonna just throw their hands up in the air and say, this is, this is useless. I, why would I even bother? Is God just a nefarious precocious chooser of some and not others verse 1 chapter 10 brethren my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them the Jews that he knew is for their salvation does Paul sound like a Calvinazi does Paul sound like someone who is so committed to the sovereignty of God that he doesn't weep for those he wants to come to faith in Christ for I test about them with, that they have a zeal for God but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. This is important, verse four. For Christ 
is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He doesn't say elect. He doesn't say chosen. Even after all the discussion about God's choosing and God's nature and God's sovereignty, he still lands in 10-4 by saying, this depends on whether or not you will believe, not whether or not you think you're elect. You want it really simple? How do you know you're elect? You believe. That's how you know. Paul never, ever distanced himself from his heart of wanting any and everyone to know Christ. He didn't go up to someone in his witnessing and say, excuse me, do you think you're elect? Do you know the secret Christian handshake? No. He looked at everyone as potentially one of God's chosen and told them the gospel and expected that they would believe. You say, well, if he believes so strongly in the sovereignty of God, why would he stress so much the encouragement and admonition for people to believe because he had a healthy balance of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man and they never tripped him up. He preached them both and he laid both of those on his heart as influential in how he shared the gospel. It's amazing. After a chapter and a half of Paul emphasizing the sovereignty of God and salvation, he points back to our responsibility to exercise faith and believe the gospel. Now, at the end of, back to Ephesians 1. At the end of this little phrase, he chose us in him. Those two words are really important. In him. Nothing about our salvation from God's choosing of a believer to the believer's believing can be separated from the glory and person of Jesus Christ. It's all in and about and for and to and through and because of him. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, by his doing, God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. It comes back to him. Let me say what we've talked about so many times. Salvation is all and only about the Lord Jesus Christ and his work and his glory. He chose us in him because of him, for him, through him, as a result of him. So I know some could be easily tripped up and say, well, I I struggle in my faith. And when I struggle in my faith, I, I, I wonder, maybe it's because I'm not elect. The simple question to ask yourself is, do I believe, do I want to believe? Non-elect people don't care to believe. So we can't do anything about God's choices, but we can do something about our responsibility to believe. We'll come back to that when we look at predestination just a little bit next week. Thirdly, when were they chosen? Now, this has really comforting nuances. When were they chosen, the ones who were chosen? Text tells us, before the foundation of the world. He, they, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. The time stamp for God's act of choosing, described in verse four, before the creation of the world, the foundation of the world, points to the fact that this divine decision was made, get this, when no cu- human could have contributed. This is taking again away any sense of works that we would add. 
He chose you, not because you chose him. We'll see that next week. God didn't look down the corridors of time and see who would choose him, and that became his choice. That, no, he looked down the corridors of time and said, I want to choose him or her to glorify me. Isaiah 44, verse 1, regarding God's choice. Oh, listen, Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you in the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, for, and you and, and Jerusalem, uh, whom I have chosen. Listen, just as he chose Israel and Abraham out of all the nations, not because they were mighty, but because he sovereignly chose, that's the paradigm for him choosing us as well. And it happened before we were even born, before the world began, which means we have nothing to contribute. Look over at Ephesians 3 for a moment. Ephesians 3, verse 8. And what I want to show you is in verse 11, but we have to read from verse 8 to get the momentum for it. To me, the very least of all the saints, Paul says, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance, here it is, with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, God's elective, sovereign, salvific choices were made from all eternity, no accidents. And again, Paul made the, cho- the point in Romans 9 that before Jacob and Esau were even born, a choice was made. The same holds true for every believer. Why is this important? It completely dismantles any notion that we contribute anything to our salvation. We weren't even born and he tapped us on the shoulder. Why? Why? That's our last question. Why were they chosen? This is humbling. This is convicting. That we, we were chosen before the foundation of the world in Christ that we would be holy and blameless before him. The final description of God's choosing of believers has a moral dimension, a sanctifying category. We were chosen to be holy and to be blameless. Remember, that's the basic notion of being a saint in verse one, one who is holy and blameless. It means different, separated from the world blameless, without reproach, not perfect, but blameless and without reproach. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's why we were created, saved, that God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Ephesians 5.27, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she, the church, would be holy and blameless. It's easy to think about being holy and blameless. Paul tells the Philippians, we should be before the world, holy and blameless children as lights in the dark world. And we should be holy and blameless before the world. And that's said later in Ephesians. Ephesians. 
But that's not what's being said here. <laughs> Look at the text. That we would be holy and blameless. See what it says last? Before him. Before his eyes. Do you think of living holy not so that the world would have an evangelistic example, but do you think of being holy so that God would be pleased because he saved you to be that very way? Hebrews 4.13 has been a passage that has been one of my life verses. Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Salvation results in holiness, in sanctification, in pursuing godliness. Titus 2, verse 11, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. The gospel comes instructing us to deny sinfulness, to live holy, to be sanctified. He goes on to say, to live righteously and sensibly and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous, excited, happy, leaning into good deeds. Before him, we live to and for God's eyes. Do you remember that no creature is hidden from God's sight, but everything is open and laid bare to his eyes, the one with whom we have to do? Do you remember that he is ever present and ever watching and supports us? He chose us so that we would be holy, not just so we would be saved. I love the third verse of crown him with many crowns. Crown him the Lord of life who triumphed o'er the grave, who rose victorious to the strife for those he came to save. He chose a group of people individuals to be holy and blameless before him and died and rose that we would have that singular purpose. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you believe? There is never any place in the scripture that says check to see if you're elect every admonition to salvation is believe. And I bring that up because I don't want anyone to think, well, I'm left out and God didn't choose me, so therefore I'm hopeless. No, it's just the opposite. After a chapter and a half of talking about God's sovereignty, Paul says he saves those who believe. 
and you have the opportunity to believe today that Jesus lived for you, that he died instead of you, that he rose to give you the hope of life after death and heaven and eternity. Let me just beg you, if you don't know him, to unpack your burdens today, to show in absolute desperation, God, you need and want him today. 